Hi everyone, this is Afsha. Today we have Anisha, who is a research director at Busara Center for Behavioral Economics, headquartered in Nairobi, and is responsible for the planning strategy and trajectory of Busara's research engagements. She supervises an active portfolio of projects and works on developing partnerships to form a global South ecosystem for experimental research. Prior to Busara, Anisha has worked as a research manager at IFMR LEAD in India, where she designed and ran a number of field trials toward digital financial inclusion and livelihood programs. Hi, Anisha, welcome. And along with her, we have Professor Just from the Dyson School, and we have Spriti as well joining the pod- podcast. Hello. So let me, let me start off first with uh, Anisha, We would like to know what got you interested in behavioral science. Thank you for the introduction. (laughs) Um, I I was actually interested in behavioral science when I was doing my undergraduate. So more than a couple of years ago now, Um, I I was an econ major, but I took a lot of classes in psychology. And I sort of realized that both of them were on the same tangent, but still going in opposite directions at some point of time. And I remember distinctly at the end in my last semester or so, I was having a conversation with this professor, William Tov, who I was uh, RAing for at the point. And I was running a lot of his research related to well-being and happiness. Um, And he was obviously asking me, like, what are your plans for the next few months? Um, Are you looking for work? Are you going to apply for masters? And And I had a very unarticulated response to like, I'm really interested in how people make these decisions that don't line up with what economics says, but also does. And I I just didn't know what I was saying. But in my head, somewhere there were questions around how people choose and how people um, decide and all of that. Uh, And then he looked at me, he was like, I know what you need. Have you read Nudge yet? Uh, And I was like, no, I haven't even heard of this. Uh, Obviously, this was way before behavioral science was the cool thing. (laughs) Um, And then I went home that evening and I downloaded the book. I read it in the next week and the next meeting when I went back to him. I was like, yeah, I'm applying for master's and it's going to be in this. Um, And it sort of took off from there. So literally, that was the conversation which solidified why, what I was interested in and what I should do with it next. For me, that was um, uh, Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. So my boss asked me, so what are you doing over here? What, what are you doing with your life? And I was like, I don't know, maybe like change my job. And he's like, how about you read this book? And then I read <laughs> the book and uh, he gave me his copy. And then I think about like a week or two weeks later, I, got, I went home. I was like, so the thing is, the book is great, but I'm going to quit this job and do my master's in this field. So yeah, thanks. <laughs> so that's how for me, like my master's happened. Yeah. Clearly, people have similar <laughs> master's decisions. Yeah, I think I have the similar same story as you. Basically, I did a double major in economics and psychology in my undergrad. Did some research along the lines of marketing and psychology. And I was just like, oh, this field looks amazing to me. And I'm just going to pursue my master's in this now. <laughs> yeah, that seems. is beautiful. <laughs> I, it's, yeah, it's, it's funny how everybody has their story about how this sort of clicked with them. And they, they uh, became fascinated by it. So, Anisha, I'm I'm interested. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about what you do at Basara? It's it's an interesting organization. Maybe tell us a little bit about Basara as well. Okay, I think... Busara was started with a very academic background, and now we sort of lie at the nexus of development, behavioral science, but also research and um, 
consulting and advisory services. So it's sort of this melting pot of all four, uh, which positions us nicely to apply behavioral science in the global south. So what I do specifically is I look after the research portfolio at Busara, which means that we are sort of the bridge between academia and like rigorous academic research and applying it for more private sector clients, foundations in that space. Um, so I look after the lab and labs at Busara now that we are <laughs> expanding over the world. Um, and what we do is apply behavioral science and run a lot of experiments. Our focus is low income populations because our mission is to sort of apply behavioral science towards poverty alleviation. Um, so that's sort of what sets us apart from a lot of other organizations in the space and what got me interested in the first place. Um, what I do externally, that's what I do internally. What I do externally is we're also looking to sort of build capacity for applying behavioral science across the global south. Um, so finding organizations who are interested, partnering with them, setting up labs and like this whole experimental ecosystem together is sort of what my focus has been for the last few months and coming few months. So, so you said global south. What uh, I, I guess, what does that include? I mean, is that literally just uh, yeah. southern half hemisphere or what, where? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a good question because for us, like the Global South doesn't include um, New Zealand, Australia and other developed nations. So I guess it's and a bit of India falls in the north of the equator. So <laughs> there are a few contradictions there. But essentially what it means to us is applying it in more developing contexts um, with populations which are tighter on their income levels. Right. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, and you, you sort of drew this distinction. I, I, distinction that I, uh, I deal with quite often between sort of academic oriented yeah. behavioral economics and applied behavioral economics. What, give us a little bit of an idea of what the challenge is of sort of translating between those two. Yeah, I think they've always remained two distinct spaces and it's sort of my personal challenge has been bridging them and bringing them together. So there are a few ways we're trying to do it now. Um, obviously, everybody has very different motivations and incentives for research. So for organizations, it's for their own profitability, to understand their consumer markets better, um, to develop better products, services, policies, all of that. For academics, they have a large incentive towards publishing, towards research that's implemented under very strict contexts. And sort of bridging those two gaps is the main challenge, unfortunately. Um, um, but what we're trying to do increasingly is run both sides of the research, but also have academics consult in a way on more advisory side projects. So you would be working with, say, the government in Nigeria to evaluate a bunch of um, financial inclusion programs. But we actually had Josh Dean from University of Chicago, who is the main advisor on the project. So making sure your experiments are still rigorous, but still applicable, um, and then sort of feeding into both worlds. So yeah, it's an interesting dichotomy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess from my point of view is the, the academic side, there seems to be this real bent towards trying to find things that are, are just, you know, interesting reading. <laughs> um, that, that maybe are interesting in, in some sort of esoteric way. And, yeah. and the practical side is, Often, I, I mean, so it's drawing on the same behavioral science, which is exciting, but often the applications are something that's sort of mundane, like getting people to pay their taxes or some, something like that, that, uh, that isn't going to, I don't know, light up the, the bestseller world um, quite the same way. But it, so 
what are the specific challenges then to contextualizing behavioral science in this, this global south that you described? Yeah, yeah, I think it builds off what you said, right? Like the academics are looking for things that are interesting or novel, but there are all these applications that aren't always as interesting to read about. Um, but I think why it still makes sense to us and why I'm still excited when I go to work every morning is because of the population we work with. Um, and as you said, that requires a lot of contextualization. So I think what that means for us is that a lot of, um, a lot of the concepts that are studied in uh, Western universities or by professors aren't necessarily, you can't translate them the same way into the context that we work with. So there's always like a huge contextualization angle, um, a big formative research angle that sort of makes everything interesting each time. <laughs> um, and then just to thinking about contextualization, there are sort of five big buckets and I can go through what some of them mean to me. Um, but essentially what we've discovered, and there was, I think in 2018 or 19, somebody did a review of all the literature out there and there's about less than 1% that actually focuses on African population and African samples in published economic journals. Um, so what that means for us is there are a lot of behavioral biases as well that don't translate the way you would anticipate them to. Um, we ran a study two years ago, where, and we're still doing it now across multiple countries, where we took 13 of the big behavioral biases um, that have come out of you know, years of work, and we sort of saw whether they still apply if you test them with low-income populations in Nairobi. Um, and there were a couple of things that we got out of that, which was super interesting. So one is you can't test the biases the way you test them in the US, right? So the typical uh, Linda problem or the decoy effect, we had to, when, you, when we did them just as they were, there were, we didn't see anything. We saw like a bunch of noise. Um, so we had to change the Linda problem and make her merry, make her um, active in political, part of, like a participant in political gatherings. Uh, we had to change the decoy effect. We, instead of your econ economist subscription, we had uh, airtime and mobile data bundles and we sort of positioned the options ABC that way. So there was a level of contextualization that's important. Um, and then what we discovered was even after contextualization, some biases hold, um, but some, but or not all of them. So we found that the Mary, our Mary problem um, did elicit the same response that it did with US samples. But then when you looked at the decoy effect, uh, <laughs> yeah, we had, it was a good measure. It was a better test than the original decoy effect, but we still didn't see um, the same sort of irrationality that you see. So I think there are interesting pieces over there on like how you translate concepts. Um, the other big portion is that when people think of running non-Western with research with non-Western samples, they often think that, okay, we'll go to the five universities in Nairobi, uh, we'll speak to university students there, we'll invite them to the lab and that forms uh, you know, an African sample. But that's really not the case. And I think what we found even when we did the biases and even when we've run a lot of other research is that university samples in Kenya, in India, they compare much better to university samples in the US than when you do it with um, low income populations. So there's obviously like nuance around the fact that like culture is not enough um, or like your geographical location is not enough, but there are various factors in your environment that also affect how you contextualize. 
Um, I think those are the two big ones to me. There are other smaller ways in which contextualization matters. And those are like the way, the way we use certain behavioral science measures don't translate the same way. So we have a contextualized risk and time preference measure. We have a contextualized dictator game. So when you show like just the silhouette of a person, um, we don't show the typical bald black man silhouette. We show something that looks a little more less <laughs> um, bald black man, but looks a little more African maybe they have hair, maybe they're a little bigger. Um, there are ways to make it more relevant. <laughs> um, and it looks, you know, it's more, the populations can associate with it better. Um, I think the other two big ones are understanding results. So I was once talking to an ethnographer or ethnographer anthropologist. He was running work in Northern Kenya. And he said, you know, there's all this behavioral science literature. People talk about risk and time and like when you give, how that changes when you give people fractions of money versus whole amounts. Uh, and then he said, you know, but I did this in this one county and it never actually like, it didn't come out the same way. And he was like, but because I'm an anthropologist, I knew it was because um, that particular amount, like a hundred Kenyan shilling bought, was what people spend on one kg of fish. So they didn't care if you were offering them 104 shilling. Of course, they won't go for that. They'd still go for the 100. Um, and I was like, huh, this is so interesting how you need it. Like you need to understand the context to even understand your results. A typical economist and me back in the day would have simply been like, oh, they're just irrational and that's it. Um, so I think there's components there that are important as well. It's, uh, yeah, that's, that's fascinating to me for, on, a, on several different levels. I mean, one I, one of the big knocks on on a lot of the behavioral results is they were developed in these Western universities on university students, and that's not yeah. terribly representative of much of the world, and and particularly not terribly representative of much of the world policy cares about, right? Yeah. So it's 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 cool that you're you're sort of working in this area where you're taking care of that criticism and and uh, and looking very specifically at it and what what it means, but it, you know you could almost sort of differentiate between some of the results you're talking about where some of them like Linda versus Mary, it, it's, it's just, there's a different set of language that's used and a different culture um, about what people are like and what is acceptable behavior, I guess. But the, the other piece, it sounds like you're, you're hinting at in a lot of these contexts, really what people value is different, which is, which is, perhaps much more to the core of economics than, uh, than just culture itself. Um, I, do you observe that very often where it's just, you know, they're, they're, you're talking about the hundred, hundred shilling, I guess it was versus 104. Are there, are there a lot of examples like that where it's just like the, what they value is very different than what we would value in Western society? I think yes. And like personally, where the challenge comes in is that a lot of times that difference in value gets put down to like incorrect or inaccurate data. And there are very few people who actually want to look at the meta picture of, okay, we're not seeing consistent risk preferences across like 10 different studies. Maybe there's something wrong with the way we're measuring it in the first place, or maybe this preference just doesn't exist in the same way that it exists in societies where these concepts were born. Um, and I think they're very, so it happens a lot. <laughs> there are yeah. tons of examples, but I think we 
us as well, but also people, other researchers struggle to differentiate between like, okay, where is the problem actually? Um, and a lot of like recent research, we're trying to focus towards that, but not a lot actually gets focused on that, right? Again, because incentives don't line up. It's not interesting for everybody to read about, um, but definitely like core concepts that I've come to question in the last few years, which otherwise I would have blindly believed was um, pretty accurate throughout. Yeah, yeah. There's, it, there's something much deeper that we need to get at eventually. Maybe, yeah. uh, maybe when it becomes interesting enough to read about. Um, <laughs> so I, 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 the other piece that's sort of fascinating is you, you're doing this in a, you know, a developing country context. And uh, I, I know from my own experience that uh, running experiments in a developing country is, is an adventure, um, <laughs> a significant adventure. What, what are some of the challenges you face in, in trying to do this research in this context? Yeah, uh, I think there are a few. Um, in turn, like, there are a few with the different stakeholders involved, right? So if you're working with clients or you're working with academia, there are certain challenges there, but then there are also certain challenges we face with the research questions itself and with the sort of participants we work with. So maybe just a few lines to cover them all is I think on the um, academic and client side, there's a lot on like people assume that things are gonna work clockwork like they do everywhere else, but then they come into the lab in Nairobi and they see, oh, it's uh, 12 o'clock, the lab session was scheduled to start at five past 12, but people are still waiting in the waiting room, people still haven't registered, <laughs> what's going on, you guys aren't starting on time, and like, you know, just that, so explaining that is a <laughs> little difficult sometimes. Uh, so we always encourage people to come here, immerse themselves a little bit, see what it's like, and then start, you know, piloting and running their projects. Um, I think that that's one big thing over there. On the more client side, what we often find is that people have a very um, strong idea of what challenge they're trying to solve and how that translates into a research question. But you're often getting at the at like the wrong research question. So there's something underlying the problem that takes a lot of prodding and prompting to get to. Um, and I think there is sometimes like mis focus or um, a lot of time spent in that. So that's sort of the challenges there. Uh, the challenges on actually working with these participants is that a lot of questions, and even if you think about some typical behavioral science literature, uh, a lot of it can be a bit deceptive in nature. When you talk about like time and risk and giving incentive compatible payouts, is it actually, um, do you actually, are you actually paying in a compatible way? Uh, when you say you're making a rand, like based on a randomly chosen decision, are you actually choosing the decision randomly? Um, a lot of the social norms framing where you say eight out of 10 people in your neighborhood are now buying this family planning tool, you should also try it. Like that's eight out of 10 is probably not true, right? There are other ways to, um, activate that social norm concept. So I think that's something we struggle with. We try to be a no deception based lab. Um, and there's definitely questions that come in there. And I think the last bucket, which is probably the biggest and probably more salient to me right now is the way in which we treat participants. Um, get, there's a lot of like dignity, discretion, 
sensitivity required, which is often a challenge um, and often a challenge when you need to ensure it across all projects, right? So it goes into small things, like when you send a message to invite somebody to a lab session, um, there was somebody we worked with, Tom Wayne, uh, and he does a lot on dignity. Um, and so we tested this thing with him where if you say dear participant versus dear, use the person's name versus give them an option of two sessions that they can attend. So there's difference in like autonomy, equality, respect, which plays a much bigger role <laughs> um, than you realize to start with. And I think why I say it's salient to me right now is like there's obviously a lot of focus um, on this half of the world because of the corona pandemic outbreak. Um, and there are people who want to answer all these questions which are relevant to health and e economics and all of that. Um, but there's ways to do it. Like you're choosing these populations because they are more vulnerable, but there are ways to do it with dignity so that they don't feel like they're being used for a research process, right? And I think those small nuances are where the larger challenges lay. Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing there have to be a lot of ethical dilemmas that sort of pop up in running experiments uh, in developing countries like that um, with, with poor populations, because the poor populations are the ones you're primarily interested in helping, right? Yeah. Um, so how do, you, how do you balance that? How do you try to, you know, balance this idea of, you know, I, we want to run these experiments, we want to learn, but we don't want to put them in positions where they feel compelled. Yeah, exactly. It's a tough one. <laughs> um, and I think we're trying to solve it day to day, um, having discussions. We try to include participants early on. So even when we are designing questions or um, prototypes or whatever, we try to make it a more participative process. Uh, even when you're designing messages, all of that, so that they feel like they're part of the research process. Um, we're now experimenting with ways in which do people feel differently if you go back and actually tell them about the responses, right? Like otherwise, if you, you give them an informed consent, you say your pub, your you won't be singled out. It's all confidential. It'll be anonymous. Um, and this is broadly what we're looking at. But nobody really goes back and says, "Hey, this is what it was about. And like this is what we found. Um, and this is what we're doing okay. with the finding." So we're now trying to find ways in which we can um, involve those, like add those bits a little more. And I think. The other part is that a lot of these experiments are one like unidirectional, um, but there's like, we decided a question, we're now gonna like run this experiment with you, but there are ways to um, include more different way, different methods or different open-ended questions, get people to participate a little more and feel like, you know, they're getting something out of it as well, besides a financial incentive or besides any of that. So it's a tough one. Can't promise we're doing a good job. <laughs> awareness is the first step, right? <laughs> Very good. Yeah, I, I, that makes a good a bit of sense to me. I, I, I know my my experience with it is, you know, it's been useful to make sure I have people working with me who are ingrained in the local culture and can tell me what what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and what's, you know, what people would be uncomfortable with. I, I, uh, it's funny you were talking about some of the practical issues of, of carrying out these experiments. I, my first experiment in a developing country was in China years and years ago. And uh, I, I'm sure I'm on some sort of watch list in China to this day because it, their banks don't function like ours. And so we're going around trying to get the denominations of money we need to run these experiments. And you can't get them at a single bank. We had to like go from bank to bank to bank for like, two days, probably visited more than 30 banks to get the right denominations. So, you know, 
with the level of surveillance there, I'm sure uh, I'm sure the government has me on some list saying yeah, this person visited like 40 banks and asked for, you know, this much money in small bills, <laughs> right? What are they doing? <laughs> but, yeah, Probably but, it, but it's I think a lot of our team is from like from Kenya. Um, a lot of our Indian team is only from India. Nigeria is only from Nigeria. So I think that helps. That goes a long way. And like there was, we were recently doing some survey and one of the questions was on, do you consider yourself a person of color? Uh, and I feel, I was supposed to give feedback on the survey and I filled it out and I was like, oh, nothing. It seemed pretty straightforward. And I got a, another colleague of mine to fill it out. And she was like, but you said you are a, a person of color because I'm Indian, but I don't think you are. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I'm a person of color because I'm African, but you aren't because you're not. And I was like, wow, like these things just mean so many different things to different people. And without having everybody part of the process, it would all just get lost. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I said, so your interventions, you're trying to find ways to address the effects of poverty and and have some sort of sustainable outcome. How do you, I, I, what I find frustrating a lot of times with these types of interventions is how do you know that something's going to end up having a lasting effect? How can you tell? Yeah, I think it's a, obviously it's a tough one. I think what we are trying to do is that we try to focus on the mechanism or the insight behind it. We focus less on intervention or we focus equal parts on both. And I think the idea there is that interventions, when you scale them up, don't, um, don't scale up the same way as you intended, but also they don't necessarily scale up the same way over time. Right. But uh, there's enough literature to say preferences aren't stable over time, but more or less you do um, find that some behavioral mechanisms do stay at least consistent uh, within like a time frame that you're trying to affect. Uh, so what we do is focus. So even all of our interventions, when we design them, we don't really do purely only nudges. We do behaviorally informed interventions, um, which means we use various concepts to try and uh, inform what the design should be. We, they aren't purely like choice-based or affecting your environment or architecture. Um, and then I think the, sec yeah, the, main, the, the main thing is the first one where we really try to uncover what the insight is um, and find ways to design for that rather than um, just add a behavioral angle to an ongoing intervention. So for example, we were recently discussing a lot of um, personal interest area of mine is gender. And we were looking at, um, there's obviously this whole gap in the labor market and in supply and in people's job choices and search and all of that. Um, and from a very interventions perspective, you can find ways to solve it. But there are underlying mechanisms that are different as well, right? Women have, there is a, a little bit out there and like women have different um, time preferences and how that affects your search costs when there are anyway higher search costs for women to look for employment because they're otherwise engaged in unpaid care and all of that. There are very few pieces that actually look at that and then try to design to overcome that rather than just providing uh, an option for employment or provide or like um, purely intervention focused. So I think we try to balance that out a bit and hope <laughs> in some way that overcomes the problem of either short-term change or not being consistent when rolled out um, on a large scale. Uh, that also means we have a heavy focus on more formative research. So we were running something recently with the American Cancer Society 
on the uptake of uh, HPV vaccinations. Um, and we found we did we were doing it in India and Kenya, and we did a lot of formative research beforehand and found that the problem is the same. There's low uptake and adherence, but um, the reasons for it are different, right? So in, in Kenya, the reason was that it's a cultural angle and you need to target the decision maker in the family. But in India, there was hesitancy on the doctor's side to actually prescribe the vaccination in the first place. Hmm. So I think if we had purely focused on, okay, uptake is low, we need to design to uh, increase uptake, we would have missed solving for these more nuanced um, factors behind it. And that's sort of where I hope we try to make a little longer term change. <laughs> so do you ever have the opportunity to go back and look at something that's been implemented and, and see, were, were yeah. we successful in doing what we designed? Did it, did it actually work long term? Yeah, like a, like a follow-up. Hmm. So I think we don't do that as much as we should. <laughs> um, we're very much, we will give you the recommendation till piloting and then, you know, this is yours to roll out. Um, but I think we have tried to do it in some of our longer term work where we look at the effects of cash transfers and mental health versus health insurance. And like some of those pieces we do engage in longer term um, follow-ups and going back to the same populations, but probably not as much <laughs> as we should actually be doing. I was interested, you brought up uh, uh, gender and gender differences. Um, I, I know a lot of the uh, development literature is focused on, on these sort of gender differences in behavior um, with, you know, with essentially some of the, the um, stylized results being that women tend to be much more responsible with money and, and, uh, and aid than men tend to be. Um, I, are you running into a lot of issues like that with these sort of behavioral policies where you just get very different behavior depending on who it is you're trying to impact? Yeah, that definitely happens across. So it's not just like cash transfer. It happens across health, depending on who you get the, who the information goes to. And I think even given current times when a lot of uh, messaging is coming from the government about you should wash your hands, you should wear masks, you should do whatever we were concerned on, like who is the first person who's reading this message because it means very different things about for the family, right? So if it's if the woman is actually receiving the information firsthand, then she can take things away from it that will apply to her children, to the family, to all that context. Um, but we do know that men sort of tend to use, uh, there's a mobile phone gap, there's a smartphone gap. Um, men might be receiving information through more direct channels first, and that probably has different implications for which part of the messaging is actually carried on, right? So I think it it spans everything we do there is definitely a difference in who the actual end user is whether it's cash transfer whether it's inf health information um whether it's educational incentives whatever you're you're looking at you know it's, it's really really interesting to actually hear whatever we study in class like these are just like concepts and like caveats and research and you know small points that we are just told to take note of but to actually actually hear it being a part of the process uh, you know just add sort of credibility to whatever i've learned in class all through the you know the last couple of months and i think it's funny what you mentioned about like the differences in messages for dif for like genders because I've seen that like in India, obviously we, we are seeing the impact of the pandemic and I've seen how 
in my parents especially like both my father and my mother take the messages very differently they interpret it very differently mm. and it means different things for like what happens with my family right we have all these face times where they both have different reactions and they both give me separate advice on what to do and it's because like the messages are reaching them differently and it creates a whole lot of confusion that i cannot deal with right now you're uh, you're making me self conscious about my my conversations with my daughter who's uh, who's away we, but yeah no my my wife and i we give very different types of advice and just pay attention to different things about uh, about how her life is going when we give advice so um so i i, I want to bring us uh, to a conclusion just um so anisha we have we have a lot of people who uh, listen to this who are interested in behavioral science generally some thinking about it as, as an occupation or, or a potential future occupation, where do you think the frontiers are? What are the things that we need to be paying attention to in behavioral science that, that uh, maybe have been ignored? I think one large part for people who are um, looking to get into behavioral science in the long term, I think one of the main learnings for me, and I hope other people take this on as well, has been that we often look for like quick wins or saying that, oh, behavioral, like we applied this behavioral concept and it led to this change and that's great. Um, but it doesn't always pan out like that, right? There are other complementary structural systemic uh, changes that are required or developments that are required that just add value um, alongside the whole process and sort of using behavioral science in conjunction with all these other complementary um, approaches would actually push the frontiers. Um, and then I think the second point was that I think there are all these smaller nuances to do with the population you work with, like we've discussed throughout now, whether it's gender, whether it's income levels, uh, whatever it might be, that actually is a behavioral problem in itself to be solved for um, and I hope people focus on that a little more as well. That's great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Anisha Singh from uh, Basara. Um, it was great to have you on here. I hope uh, hope you enjoyed it. Yes, thank you so much. This thank you great. so much, Anisha. Thank you so much, Professor Jast. It was uh, great talking to both of you. <laughs>